It's June 12th, 2021, and welcome to episode 60 of the Babe Metal Podcast. We gather in the podcast Discord server on alternate weeks to discuss news and thoughts on the past and future projects of Babe Metal. We invite you to join us, whether you're a longtime fan or have only just arrived. I am Paul, and I'm joined by Kevin. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And this week, a special guest, Stephen, maybe better known to everyone as Funny Toss. How are you? Hello, everyone. Hey, welcome. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. And uh, Maggie couldn't be here this week, but she will be back. So. Hello, Maggie from the beyond. So we have uh, a little bit of recent news we can talk about. Uh, and then after that, we will turn to talking with Funny Toss about the uh, process of translation. The translations that we've been covering recently have largely been his work along with Capable Paramedic. And so we'll talk a little bit about that uh, once we get done with the news. Yeah, I suppose that was the end goal. That's why we've done all these episodes on translations. That's right. There was a plan. Although there will be more episodes on translations. Yes, there will. But we had <laughs> a plan. There are many, many translations. <laughs> but okay, so let's see. There's a, there's not been a whole lot of news. We actually, in real time, uh, it's only been a week since we recorded last. A couple of little things. Um, one was that uh, apparently the Tower Records is having a fundraiser, uh, the Music Cross Aid Goods Festival, which is basically just um, a, a cross-artist merch festival. Uh, and Baby Metal is participating in that. Yeah, lots of Amuse artists are also participating. Sakugakuin's participating. One five, I think I saw Perfume in there. Oh, okay, but it's uh, but it's not Amuse only, right? No, no, no. It is not Amuse only. It's Tower Records, but a lot of the Amuse artists have a pretty, or I guess Amuse yeah. in general has a pretty good uh, relationship with Tower Records. So that makes sense that a lot of their artists are participating yeah. in this. So anyway, um, it's, I mean, I think what you have to do is, is actually go to a tower records, uh, on like June 14th to June 30th. <laughs> and you do. Uh, so probably most people who are listening to this in English are not, uh, not going to be doing that, but at any rate. Right. And don't feel sued left out. The merchandise is the same stuff they sold for the Budokan shows or a smaller selection of it. So it is still available. You just don't get to contribute to a good cause if yeah. you buy it. But the Budokan shows were originally online only, right? Like the merch could only be purchased online as opposed right. to in person. Correct. But for this one, the Tower Records thing, you can purchase it in person, right? Yeah, you have to go to Tower to make your purchase. Cool, cool. And I believe you walk out of I think you walk out of the store with it. I'm not sure. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Also, what else? Um, Leda turned 34. So happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> not, not sure what really... What else to say about that? It blows my mind that we're the same age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that doesn't, that does seem, um, to me, it doesn't seem very old. <laughs> but yeah, well, I was also looking up on a random note, I was looking up, I think, the ages of like some of the baby metal songwriters. Mm-hmm. And I think, who was it? Was it Yuyo Yupei or whoever was like in their late, like mid 20s when they wrote like, you know, Make Itsune and stuff like that, which just mm. blew my mind. That's okay. You were just jumping out of airplanes when you right, were in your right. 20s. I was actually already 30 at that point. Not very smart. Okay. You age quickly when you do that. Yeah. Yes, your knees don't your knees don't uh, don't thank you very much at all. Uh, let's see. And then I guess maybe the only other thing and it's possible that there's more to talk about here. I'm not sure. Um is that uh in advance of the stream, you know, the worldwide premiere stream, Bibmel has announced original stickers that you can use in the chat. These are chat stickers. Um you know, okay. <laughs> Neat. I don't quite understand what they are. 
there's I've seen a lot of debate about if they're merchandise or not and if you have to buy them. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you had to buy them, they would have said, you know, for 200 yen or whatever, you can buy the sticker pack to use on the stream. I don't say that yeah. anywhere. So I think I'm inclined to think they're just stickers you can use for fun during the show. Yeah. But I'm conflicted because there are like official stickers that you have to pay for on like line, for example, which is which is why I'm not super sure. And it also seems contrary to what they've been doing lately, giving us something for yeah. free. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I my my but my reading of it had was essentially that it was, you know, just free. It's something that you can use it in this particular stream. So, yeah, that's my interpretation as well. I, I just my crocodile brain expects to be taking advantage of a little bit more, mm-hmm. I guess. And you can sort of see. So there are nine of them um, and they like some of them you can sort of see the use for. So, the, you know, generally speaking, they're they're kind of like the um, the one illustrations or whatever, you know, so they've got a they've got a sort of a Mr. Bones there. <laughs> doing various things um and you know so one sticker has has uh the writing says baby metal and you know so presumably that's for using during the we are sections uh and there's mm-hmm. a there's one where there's clapping um and uh, several of these actually are organized into like sort of two simultaneous frames at once you know so there's sort of like there's sort of two two actions um you know so in the clapping one uh, there's like the arms spread out and then the arms together and little wind lines Mm. (laughs) or whatever right um and then there's there's one there are two that have uh whoa 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 on the background one with sort of like a uh flailing (laughs) mr bones there and then just one open and i assume that's you know that would be you'd use that probably for i don't know what distortion (laughs) i don't know what Maybe. Um, yeah. So, th- but there is there's one the the headbang one where the two frames one. Oh my god! The, the two frames setup went very badly. <laughs> uh, how does this get out of QA? You're like, oh, this is fine. This is fine. This is fine. It's my favorite yeah. sticker. Because <laughs> what it's, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to describe it too much, but I mean, essentially, it's just you know, it's it's uh, upright. And then, then, then sort of bowed forward, and then, but it's not but it's upright. in it's in two frames, <laughs> it's in two frames represented on the same yeah. sticker. Yeah, the, let's just say we don't want to risk getting demonetized on YouTube for right. describing <laughs> it in detail. Let's just say, uh, let's just say that I have no doubt that it will be the most popular one in the chat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, they knew anyway, what they were singers. doing, or they didn't. I think it's funnier I, to think that I, yeah, I, I do kind of. Think, I mean, <laughs> this is also the um, the same group that had a illustration with the "This is not a fun club." <laughs> True. So, uh, and then the other stickers are like once once just a sort of like a logo. Um, there are a couple of mask stickers: one with the Megitsune mask and one with just sort of like the um, uh, that sort of more modern mask that they they have on all the magazine covers and stuff. And then there's sort of like a weird spirally fox uh, one that doesn't that sort of is unrelated to anything we've ever seen before. So, like a ten tail fox. Oh, is it ten? Of course, it's ten. I hadn't counted, but of course, it's ten. It's ten. 
I counted because I was like, oh, did they rip off Pokemon and give us a Nine Tails? But no, they did Excellent. not. So anyway, that's that's kind of that's kind of where the news sits. I think <laughs> that sticker, though. I'm just surprised there was anything at all in the last <laughs> yeah. week. That's true. I mean, I think that's been true for years, you know, that even though it does seem like nothing's happening and for long stretches of time, there's still like little trickles of stuff, you know, like there was never a month that went by when nothing happened at all. Well, they've also started doing um, Instagram ads uh, for the live broadcast, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have seen that's true. I, didn't see that. I, I, um, I haven't seen them myself, but they, you know, like, I guess basically if, if you are an Instagram user, you will, you might come across them probably if you're in Japan, probably not just. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it is that I'm already subscribed to their, ch- their channel on Instagram. So I assume it's not going to show you that if you're already subscribed, but if you're not, you might well, see that. disappointing because <laughs> the people who care <laughs> are going to be the ones who are subscribed, but yeah. Well, yeah. Time to unfollow. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I guess I've never seen the ad. I've only seen people posting screenshots of the ad. Because mm-hmm. I don't think it'd just be region dependent this time, just because it's an international stream for once in their life, right? Well, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I have no idea. I wonder how broadly that, that got out. Yeah. Because, I mean, Instagram ads can definitely be region dependent. They can be very targeted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, what, like two weeks out, I think. Yeah, actually, that's right. Exactly. Because I... Um, yes. Exactly two weeks. Record on the day. Oh, nice. We have a plan. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes we have a plan. Well, it's possible that that is as far as the news can be stretched. (laughs) Unless, was there anything you wanted to say about the ads? I mean, did you look at them and. They're cool. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's about it. Pretty much. Uh, I think one is a silhouette of Sue on black. One's a silhouette of Moa on red, and the other one's a logo oh, or something so like that. So they're still, they're not uh, moving images. I haven't seen a moving image one. I've only seen mm-hmm. a screenshot. All right. Maybe now we can turn to actually talking to Stephen, who, as I said before, probably is best known to everyone listening as Funny Toss, who has uh, collaborated with Capable Paramedic from the Reddit uh, on a number of um, translations of recent articles and that sort of thing. And so we've we've talked a fair amount about translations, and the reason that we've had those translations to talk about is from the work of Funny Toss. So we thought it'd be good to, to bring him on and talk a little bit about kind of like the process uh, and and just his background, you know, how, how he got here, how he found baby metal, that kind of thing. So, so maybe we can sort of start there. Um, what brought you to, uh, baby metal in the first place? Um, I guess part of it is just, you know, my, uh, interest in Japan as is the case for many people, you know, I think being a weeb isn't particularly uncommon or rare nowadays. <laughs> uh, but I guess I, I, you know, I'll just start off with a basic, you know, intro and let you know let people know how it goes. So as said earlier, you know, my name is Stephen, mm-hmm. um, and I've been a baby metal fan for about a year now. So I grew up in America, you know, mostly um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, but I moved to Taiwan, uh, where I am now, later on in life. So when I was studying um, at the University of Michigan, I, I had the opportunity to study Japanese, um, and that included a half a year exchange program in Kyoto. So I've always mm-hmm. been interested in you know like Japan related stuff. And how I found Baby Metal is, you know, it's kind of a pretty straightforward story, actually, compared to some other people. Um, I, you know, learned about them through reaction videos. You know, my gateway was mm. the, the Fine Bros reaction video. I actually saw mm. it a few years ago, I think. Um, but 
again, like many others, I dismissed it as just a weird Japanese gimmick, you know, um, until I stumbled、mm-hmm. across it again when I was stuck at home during the pandemic, you know, earlier last year. And I decided this time to see if there's anything more than the weird stuff like Ine and Doki Doki Morning that was featured in that video. So I found karate, you know, road resistance, and the rest of that was history. So, yeah, I got into it, but it wasn't until later on that I started, you know, deciding to try,、uh, try my hand at translating.、Yeah. I did not realize you were comparatively a, a new fan. I thought、oh, you'd been around a、yeah. little longer than that. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm on one year. That's incredible.、Yeah. So that means you, you haven't been to a live show. Nope. All of your consumption has been either buying stuff, downloading stuff, watching stuff online, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> all, of it, all of it online. I think part of that is actually does motivate、um, the translations just because, you know, I know that the live、mm. shows are a big part of it, but for, I, you、mm. know, I care a lot about the other aspects of it as well, partly because, you know, that's how I、um, enjoy or consume、uh, oh, the stuff. So, from see, the band, all that、yeah. stuff about the, the ramen. <laughs> Now, it applies to you if the first ramen you have is online. <laughs> it, it does. It does. That's why the analogy made perfect sense to me immediately. Whereas Paul was like, I don't understand that analogy. I'm like, it's, it's no easy. No kidding. So I, I want to take a break from your bio real quick because we have a rare opportunity. Because usually when we have somebody on, they've kind of been around for a while, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, how, or maybe, how do you think your baby metal journey has been different from somebody who's been around? You know, forever or、mm-hmm. has been to shows.、Um, what's your impression of the band given that you've only known、mm-hmm. them really through the、and、pandemic? One thing that's true about that is like, the,、um, you have not been through an album release. Like, all of the albums that were released were already released, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Right.、Um, I think one way to put it is there's a difference between, let's say, you know, watching a show in real time and then binge watching it, you know, years later after it's already been completed, right?、Mm-hmm. It's when,、mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the experience you get is slightly different when you're watching, you know, Game of Thrones, you know, in real time. And then, you know, a new episode comes out, right? And then you're releasing, you're talking about it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Reddit with people for、mm-hmm. an entire week before the next episode is released, right? Sure. Um, and there's a lot more、uh, time and opportunities for you know, speculation and, and arguments and hype and all that. Whereas when you're binge watching it, oftentimes you know, by yourself, it's, it, it's a different experience、um, for better and for worse, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So、sure. I think for me, when it comes to you know, being a, a fan for only one year, you know, I basically missed a lot of the stuff in real time, you know, such as the so called golden era or Yui's departure or the dark side and stuff like that. And so For me, yeah, all three albums have already existed by the time I joined. And so I think that affects the way I perceive or I enjoy the albums, I think. I、sure. don't think there's any, I don't want to say that older fans must be biased towards the older albums because they were, you know, released during their time. But I think it's easier for me to avoid such kind of a thing because all three are technically on equal、mm-hmm. ground for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair statement to make.、Mm-hmm. You know, people who've been around long are going to latch on to what brought them、mm-hmm. in. You know, and if you've been around since the release of the first album, odds are that's going to be your favorite. And you're、yeah. going to look fondly upon that. That isn't really just apply with baby metal, it applies with all kinds、yeah. of things in life, right?、But、that said, though, I think it does actually still apply to a certain extent to baby metal because most of the publicly available stuff 
is actually from their earlier albums. Like, especially, you know, last year when mm-hmm. I was, they, when they weren't cracking down so hard on reaction videos, most of the reaction videos are reactions to stuff on YouTube, right? And most of the stuff on YouTube is from the first mm-hmm. and second album. There's very little material from their newer albums with the exception of Papaya or whatever. So, you know, as I was watching most videos, mm-hmm. my first exposure was still to the songs that they have official releases for, like, you know, Rotor Resistance and, you know, Make It Sine, Ine, Doki Morning. So, um, basically, I'm still most familiar with the first album, despite the fact that all three albums were available when I joined, because the third album was, for some reason, not very well publicized for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least on, on their official channels. How has that shaped uh, what your favorite content is or favorite mm-hmm. member? Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> no um, pressure. I think when it comes to content... I definitely, I think for me, if, I, if, I, if I'm going to rank like the overall favorite album, it would still be the first album. I think not just because that's the one I listened to first, um, mm-hmm. just because I think for me, my particular sure. taste, like, okay, so for reference, my favorite song is Megitsune. And a big reason is that is I like the whole metal thing, which is a more, you know, Western sounding thing. I like Japanese elements within metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Megitsune mm-hmm. helps to reflect that the most. Um, and, I, and I also like the whole you know, kawaii and heavy metal mm-hmm. contrast more. And there was more of that sure. in the first, you know, one as, you know, especially Yui and Moa mm-hmm. um, were young. So right. I think I remember when the first, the first time I listened to Metal Galaxy was, you know, like someone put the entire album up on YouTube and I was listening to it casually, you know, while I was at work because, you know, once I got into the band, I started binge watching. So even at work, mm-hmm. I was listening to it. Um, yep. And for me, Metal Galaxy at first, it you know that'd be hard for people to believe now, considering how much I love it and how much I tell people how much is awesome. But I didn't really like it that much the first time around. Um, I mean, I think there's different. It's mm-hmm. a, it's an album that can't really be enjoyed passively, or is not enjoyed very well audio only in comparison to some of the other songs, you know. Because sure. like you know, Ine or like Megitsune, some of the 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 Ainote, the Sora Sora is going to stand out to you immediately and draw your attention. Um, whereas something mm-hmm. like Brand new day or the stuff on Metal Galaxy is much more internally consistent. Mm-hmm. Like this, yeah. Um, there's a big difference between songs, but each song in of itself is less, you know, schizophrenic, jumping between genres like Ine. Sure. So it doesn't draw your attention as viscerally that quickly. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. So for me, yeah, I you know I only came, you know, grow grew into I think you know Metal Galaxy partly because of that, but I've enjoyed it. I think more and more as time goes on. Hmm. You know, if you if you started at Metal Galaxy and worked your way backwards, yeah, I think that would change that you would have a different perception rather than or uh, as opposed to starting at the beginning and coming forward in time. Yeah, well, and, it, and yeah. it also does seem like you know the idea that they had was to take the expectation and disassemble it and reassemble it, and of course, it doesn't work. Yeah, in reverse. <laughs> well, right. I think even though, like I said before, all three albums were available by the time I joined, um, because of the way the the content is available publicly, that is, by public I mean not on Discord or not on a ProShot spreadsheet, um, you actually, I think many people still experience the band in a relatively chronological order. Because um, I think I was a fan for about, like I was for about maybe a month or so or even almost two months by the time i actually thought or even knew about joining discord or finding about the the pro shot spreadsheet before that it was all youtube only 
Um, mm. So basically, mm -hmm. I'd already immersed myself within most of the earlier material. And, you know, and also I was confused as hell about the whole Avengers thing and all that, because it was never very clearly explained officially. Sure. You know, you don't understand that very much unless you're in a Discord or on Reddit threads or wherever. Um, I had a hell of a time telling people apart, you know, for as, as I you know, first started <laughs> and all that. So mm -hmm. in that regard, though, so my the impression of Baby what I had from the beginning was still, you know, the original trio. Like mm -hmm. Even though, yes, it was Metal mm -hmm. Galaxy and all that, but most of the material available online is of the original trio. Mm -hmm. So that's what stuck with mm -hmm. me, you know, the most. But, you know, yeah, as you get into the later albums, you know, there is no UE on Metal Galaxy and stuff like that. So I think when it comes to, uh, I don't know, I always say that I appreciate, I appreciate, you know, all the members equally. Um, I know that's a, weak, that's, a, that's a weak answer. Nothing wrong with that. But it's more that you can't really compare them per se because they they each sure. have their strengths in different things. You know, mm -hmm. like I said, you know, Sue is a queen. She has something that makes you want to, I don't know, obey her or something like that. <laughs> but Moa makes you smile like the most for some reason. You don't even know why. And then Yui is like, you know, the <laughs> cutest, you know. So in a way, they can't really be compared because they have different roles um, in the group. It's like comparing Bo to Omura. And like, you can't really, besides saying they're all great, you know. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great answer. Very diplomatic yeah. of you. It is. Well, you know, I did study political science in college, so yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Ah, nice. Perfect. You nailed it. <laughs> no, but it is actually what I believe. I'm not, I'm not you know, censoring myself for the crowd here. Yeah. It's like, what? I don't have anything oh, sure. to lose here. Yeah. No, I, I legitimately really yeah. do think that was a great answer. Yeah, no, I think and I, I, that I think conforms pretty well to the way I think about it, too. Like, I, it, it seems pointless to try to relatively measure people on scales that don't match up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, so I have I have one more thing I wanted to bring up kind of on your bio, but I'd rather spend more time on kind of getting into translation because I think there's a lot of interesting conversation to be had sure, there. Sure. Um, you told us a little bit about uh, how you got started learning Japanese college, did the study abroad. What is what's been your language learning journey um, kind of through your life to this point? Um, and I guess. I need to ask what your first language is okay. because I'm not entirely sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, I guess this, yeah, this does go back to my bio. So I was born in the United States to Taiwanese parents. Um, so my my parents are both Taiwanese. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, because, you know, my dad was stud getting his PhD at the University of Florida um, at the time. And he found a job in the States and, and, and settled down. So hmm. my mom, you know, my mom says, my first language was technically Mandarin Chinese because um, that's what she spoke to me at home. Okay. You know, I, but I always imagined myself as my first language being English because I don't remember anything from when I was a baby, right? So, but she said, yeah, I didn't sure. speak any English, you know, when she tossed me into, uh, you know, a nursery school at like two years old or something like that. And then after two weeks, I could speak English or whatever. So, but yeah. Um, so we were bilingual at home uh, with Chinese and English. Um, and like most, you know, ABCs or as we call American born Chinese, mm -hmm. um, most of us are more fluent in English um, than Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, what, how it goes is you often mostly speak English um, at school or wherever with your friends. Um, and then sure. but your parents will speak Mandarin or whatever home, home language there is um, at home. And sometimes, you know, they'd speak to you in Chinese and you'd respond in English just you know, out of habit or you don't know the words or you start mixing them, the two together. Right. So I don't really consider myself to have, have having really learned um, Chinese in the same way as other people learn a language because you grow up with it. You just mm -hmm. understand it. 
but you don't actually understand it very right. much. Like you can't explain the grammar. You just know this is wrong or this is right, you know? Mm-hmm. But sure. I did have to learn Chinese a little bit because when we moved to Taiwan, when I was 11, I was functionally illiterate. I couldn't read any kanji. Um, well, they're not called kanji in right. Chinese, but you, 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 I couldn't read any kanji. I could speak right. and understand, but I couldn't read at all. So I was actually homeschooled um, for three mm. years because I couldn't actually go to normal school, quote unquote, um, because I couldn't mm. read at all com- to, compared to other people at you know my age level. So, but my first, mm. I think, real experience of learning a language from scratch was Japanese. Um, yeah, in in college. So at the University of Michigan, they have a requirement at least in the liberal arts departments where you have to learn two years um, of the foreign language in order to graduate. And mm. you, know, you know, a fair number of people. Mm. Just, you know what, I'm just going to take a placement test and then get out of it and get the credits for it. But for me, you know, I, I could have done that for Chinese, sure. as many people did. Right. But for me, I was just like, oh, I have an opportunity to learn a language. You know, why not? And the one I was most interested in at yeah. the time, you know, and well, still is, it was, you know, Japanese because I was already pretty much a weeb. I always loved um, anime <laughs> and manga growing up. One of my dreams was to be a manga artist. Uh, when you know, when I was in high school, I used to draw a lot. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I do fan art, so I guess you know that too. Um, so, yeah, Japan was in uh, was a natural interest, and so they had a very good language program there uh, at the university, including, like I said, an optional study abroad. Mm-hmm. So I took it, and that's how I got started with learning Japanese. I was just yeah. gonna like you know be a hype person and say like yeah that does I mean it does the structure that you get you know, in college taking the opportunity that you have um, is probably worth it because it's really hard to get yourself to do it on your own I mean like you need that grade can confirm <laughs> yeah no getting self, I don't I don't I can't imagine myself being able to learn the language being self-taught mm-hmm. yeah it's really yeah. hard <laughs> especially when you're like me and love to procrastinate <laughs> yeah so uh, so where would you say your language is now? And did you kind of put Japanese away after college and pick it up again when you became a fan? Yep. Um, yep. You know, where where has Japanese played a part getting to where you are now? So uh, my strongest language pairs, so translators will talk about language pairs for the most part, even mm-hmm. if they know multiple languages, because you tend to translate between specific languages um, out of habit. So my strongest language pair was always Chinese and English. And mm-hmm. even though I've studied Japanese for about three years in college, it's been 10 years uh, since I graduated. So I did forget a lot of it, you know, um, mm. I, I only really mm. got back into it, you know, with, with these translations before that it had been a long time since I'd ever, you know, used Japanese at all, because there aren't that many opportunities to use it in real life. And of course, technically mm. you don't, you know, sure. baby metal is all online. You just have to have something that you're interested in enough to make you use this foreign language. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't have anything like that until I found. Uh, yeah, that, was, that actually sort of like connects with something I was going to ask, which was whether whether there were other things that you translated before this, or whether this is kind of like also your beginning of translation. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I used to translate things fairly often. So um, mm-hmm. back back in the day, I was a huge fan of esports, uh, StarCraft specifically, mm-hmm. and that was like you know ten years ago. And the scene was you know tiny. Mm-hmm compared to what it's become mm-hmm. now. You know, nowadays you have competitions, you know, all over the world with commentaries and interviews in English and other languages. But back then for StarCraft, it was basically just Korea. And so a lot, a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. was not localized. And so translations sure. were an important part of the StarCraft community as well. Um, so I did a lot of translating when I was in StarCraft. I didn't do Korean to English because I'm, you know, I can't speak Korean, but 
um, a lot of Korean articles and interviews were translated into Chinese by the Chinese fans. And then I, so I would take those Chinese interviews and translate those into English. <laughs> so there's a bit of a telephone going on there. Um, so that's actually where the yeah. whole Funny Toss nickname comes from. The Toss is from uh, Protoss. That was the nickname I used when I was playing StarCraft, and I've been using it for like 10 mm. years now. Huh. Yeah. You know, so I've, you know, I've been translating for, you know, for, for some time, I guess, mostly just for fun. But you know, we obviously had assignments and stuff in mm. school, too. And I, I mean, I think you, so you, you mentioned, uh, you used the term localized, which I yeah. think you know, sort of like mm-hmm. digs into one of, the, one of the kind of deep philosophical questions about how this translation works which is uh and and so part of what i was thinking about in these terms was you know in terms of things like literature and poetry and stuff like that where there really is there's there's kind of like a literal a literal sense and then there's an effect it's supposed to have on you sure but even in just something like conversation in, a, in an interview there's still there's still the question of like um yeah part of what i'm thinking of is that in some of these interviews like moa tells jokes mm-hmm. and things like that sure. or, or you know like there, there are there are things mm-hmm. where there is language play, even if it's not, even if it isn't crafted lyrics or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you have a decision to make, like, do you, do you communicate the complexity or do you try to communicate the effect? Uh, you know, and how do you situate that in, in terms of like getting out of one culture and into another and that kind of stuff? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I'm I just asked a huge question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess like I'll, I'll try to answer through the basic structure of translation versus localization because I figured you know this might not, not not necessarily be a common concept um, to people who aren't involved in translation mm-hmm. um, because there is a big difference and there is, it's more of a it's not one or the other it's kind of a sliding scale you know a spectrum in between the two so I'm old enough uh, to have observed an interesting phenomenon when it comes to Japanese, uh, you know, media translated into English. You know, so here um, you have a situation where the fact that it's translation of something that came from a foreign culture is intentionally visible nowadays. You know, for a lot of manga, mm-hmm. you know, people want to see the original meaning to a certain extent, and so now you're seeing names that aren't Westernized. You know, in Naruto, you know, for example, or I guess Dragon Ball all the names are in Japanese, you know, and there are a lot of references to Japanese mythology. You know, they don't throw grenades at each other. They have paper bombs, you know, but in contrast, like 90s kids like Mm. me, you know of Pikachu and Ash, you know, and not of Pikachu and Satoshi. The name was completely localized. So dialogue, you know, talking about onigiri rice Mm -hmm. balls was infamously replaced with donuts, right? So so I think for Baymail, because it's not, it, the stuff they give us tends not to be designed or tends not to be localized. It tends to be translated. So when they're conducting a Japanese interview that was never designed, you know, for foreign artists, you know, that the international community never would have read if it weren't for meddling people like me, um, they tend not to explain a lot of things. And so that makes it <laughs> necessary to either do a lot of research or read between the lines. And so I think when my style is when it's possible, mm-hmm. um, for example, to explain some jokes or whatever, organically within the text, I do so. But as you've seen, another technique is to use translator's notes. Um, and I tend to use those when unavoidable or when I think that it's going to provide more insight uh, into a specific text. The way someone creates material is affected by whether or not they anticipate it being uh, basically on their audience. You know, They're going to use a lot more inside mm-hmm. jokes and unexplained things or obscure references if they know that their audience specifically for this interview is going to understand it. I suppose this is a good time to bring up that you don't 
necessarily do all this translation and localization by yourself. Oh, no, no. Um, yeah. You do this with a partner or yes. collaborate quite a bit. Exactly. Um, do you want to be introduce him and uh, kind of what that relationship is like? Sure, no problem. So as Paul mentioned, you know, at the top of the podcast, um, I work with someone called uh, Capable Paramedic. Um, I have a hard time saying that every single time <laughs> um, on, from Reddit. And <laughs> Me too. just, you know, to clarify, he's not actually a paramedic. He says that was the automatic name that Reddit, like, you know, assigned him randomly when he joined and he just stuck <laughs> with it. I thought huh. he was a paramedic because he's on like online at like random hours at night. Like I'll see him. We use Google Docs, um, you know, to edit and revise our articles. And I'll see him revise me at like, you know, 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. all the time. So I figured, you know, oh, he's probably a par- paramedic. You know, he's got a weird sleep schedule. But he says, no, he isn't. I'm like, oh, okay. Sure. But yeah, so we met on Reddit and I don't know anything about him. <laughs> I knew mm-hmm. of him because he'd posted some translations of his own. And so before I posted my first translation, mm-hmm. which was the Mikiko Metal interview from Kadokawa, you know, I wasn't particularly confident in my abilities because as I said, it's been 10 years since I studied the language. So I messaged him, you know, asking him if he was willing sure. to look over it. And, you know, he very graciously said yes. Yeah. So, and that's how it all began. Um, but actually it's not just him um, who starts, uh, who helps out. I'd like to point out that, there's, yeah, there's different, you know, a lot of work that goes into um, a translation. And so there's different stuff, including, you know, scanning magazines, turning the, mm-hmm. the scan, the image into text and all that. So people, other people in the community, like, you know, like Lenser or Bateria or Shrike, they also help, you know, to scan and to trans- transcribe because that takes a lot of time, but doesn't, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need, need to know that much Japanese in order to do it. And so when I'm done with the draft translation, I message capable paramedic and then he will proofread and correct who, and it's important to think mention oh, he's Japanese. Yes. He's a native Japanese. Yes, he a Jap- he's a Jap- you know, a genuine authentic, you know, <laughs> Japanese baby little fan who <laughs> happens to be on the subreddit. Japanese is his first language. And yeah, who is very gracious about, you know, helping us, you know, translate it and doing some things on his own. So yeah, he's a guy. He's a Japanese guy who I only know online, and I literally, I literally don't know anything else, you know, about him. It's very mysterious. <laughs> but sure. in terms of dynamics, it's kind of like a teacher-student relationship that goes both ways. Um, mm. So he teaches me about Japanese that I got wrong, but it's not always that I got it wrong. Like sometimes it's more of a question to figure out why did I use this word, and mm. if I can explain it in full. Sometimes he thinks, oh, okay, that was a good choice, and now he, you know, now he's learned an English word more accurately than before. Um, and so when it terms, in terms of uh, interpretation of what a sentence means, I tend to follow his lead, but I will reword his explanations or sentence rewritings to be more smooth in English. So, sure. Yeah. And I thought it was a good time to bring him up because we were talking about localization. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that he's providing a lot of insight that other translators in the past in this community don't have because he is Japanese mm-hmm. and able to understand yes. the context at a level we can't. Oh, that is very mm-hmm. useful. Yes. Yeah, I remember actually. You know, so you just recently made available the um, that translation of the um, sort of overview of Dada Dance. You know, sort of like why it was, and uh, yes. you know that yeah. that really does kind of hammer home just how much there is behind uh, you know all of this stuff. I mean, like I remember we came across mm-hmm. this with um, uh, Ijume Dami Zatai, I guess. Um, you know, it, and the posters and stuff like that, where it was really that is really just a play on a anti drug ad you know, that was common. It was common in like the <laughs> early nineties or whatever, or 
late 80s or whatever, you know, whenever, um, uh, you know, Kobo was conscious, basically. <laughs> but, um, but, but it's not, you know, it otherwise <laughs> wouldn't have been something that we'd have any idea about, you know, and, um, and there's a lot of stuff in Dada Dance, you know, like the woo, <laughs> you know, that, that was in all the Japanese songs. And I guess you, you had said actually that, uh, that mm, um, mm-hmm. it was common for you too, right? Like there was something that you knew it from. Well, that was, there was one specific uh-huh. song that was played a lot in Taiwan. You know, Taiwan. It was the two unlimited uh-huh. one. You know, that was that happened to be used a lot on a variety yeah. of shows. So that Wu in particular was very familiar. I, I think you know, even if I were a master of the language, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that would have just gone right by me. So it, it is really it's very useful mm-hmm. to have yeah. you know have someone who's kind of in the context and can pick up those kind of like tangential relationships but then also you know be able to work with somebody who's able to translate that into you know our western thinking as well yeah i no, definitely i think that's why i like doing translations um so much um partly because it always feels like you're unearthing something that was originally hidden not really intentionally mm-hmm. hidden but something that wasn't available otherwise yeah. because that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the intent, what you're thinking of when you create some mm. material, you know. So I think Baby Metal has been criticized, you know, rightly so, for being pretty generic in their English um, interviews and content. Mm. You get the same mm. answers for the most part uh, to a lot of questions. It's very scripted. Um, and that's part, and I think that's partly due to their, you know, language barrier, but also partly because, you know, when you're answering or giving material to an international audience, you don't know what they know and you don't know what they don't know. So you don't want to give them a reference that's just totally obscure and goes mm. over their head. You don't want to make a joke that they're not going to appreciate. And so it tends to be very generic. And, you know, that's the criticism some people have of some, let's say, K-pop, you know, that's designed to be, when it's designed to appeal to everyone it appeals to no one at a certain level. You know, there's 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 there's, there's less depth in there. I don't mean it appeals to no one. Obviously, K-pop is very popular, but there's there's yeah. no deep special references that someone who pre- who who gets it will appreciate in particular. Yeah. So, for the Japanese language interviews, or especially the Japanese magazine interviews, let's say with Hedoban or Young Guitar, they know exactly who their readers are. Um, like the Dada right. Dance interview was a good example. There's a very specific demographic that is going to appreciate the article as well as the song very much, you know, whereas for the rest of the world, it might be, oh, it's a cool song. All right, got it. Mm. Um, so I think the fact that they could write an article without caring whether or not someone understood what they were saying is good because it allows them to go, you know, fully mm. in depth into something and, you know, we can, we can figure it out, but yeah. Mm. That's super interesting. And I want to just underline and restate that point because it's something I had never considered. Mm-hmm regarding how they give and present themselves in English to Mm -hmm. an international audience, Mm -hmm. that one of the reasons or a possible contributing factor to why it's the same answers over and over again is not just language barrier, but a contextual barrier and not wanting to make a reference or a joke or allude to something that nobody's going to understand because they don't have the Japanese context. I think that's super interesting. I, I had never considered that before. Right. Yeah. I mean, for example, let's say some some examples of things I can think of that are absolutely common knowledge in Japanese culture or even some Asian cultures, but that don't make any sense at all. Let's say in the West would be, let's say, zodiac signs, Mm -hmm. you know, year of the year Mm -hmm. of the oxen, year of the rabbit and what those mean for your personality Mm -hmm. or blood types. You know, there's a belief in Japan and other countries that blood type influence personality. And let's say, you know, I can easily see 
an example, let's say in Sakura Gakuin, and someone talks about, oh, so and so doesn't get along with so and so, oh, she's he's, she's blood type this, I'm blood type that, or whatever, kind of half jokingly. <laughs> right. And you're never going to say something like that in an international interview because people are not going to understand what the mm-hmm. hell what, what the hell that means, you know? Right. So you'll avoid things like that um, that are cultural reference, that, that are culturally based. Or let's say some of the expectations, well, what does Yamato Nadeshiko in Mekitsune mean? You know, what is the ideal Japanese woman? You can translate the phrase mm-hmm. ideal Japanese woman, but the image of in your head of what that woman, woman looks like, there's so much of that in Japan, you know, whether from other media or movies or whatever, right. but you can't really explain that very well uh, without spending a lot of time on it. So they, tra- they tend to avoid these things I found in their English language mm-hmm. stuff. Which is a shame, but understandable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And again, another super great reason to have a capable paramedic kind of working with you to bring out those contextual yeah. details that might otherwise be missed. Oh, yeah. Um, for I sure. guess in that same vein, um, just because through your experience um, and him, do you guys ever disagree or go back and forth and just really don't know how mm-hmm. to translate something? How do you how do you resolve that? I think any everything that we posted thus far, we there we there were some parts in some translations where we're like, I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Is this what it meant? And sometimes even he was like, I'm not entirely sure what it meant either. Um, <laughs> part of it is just, you know, translation can be difficult, and sometimes part of it is just the ambiguity of Japanese language, yeah. and part of it is just you know, Koba being Koba and not being very clear about what he's saying. Right. Um, sure. sure. But I think in general, if there's any, we don't really have any <laughs> disagreements per se. Yeah. Because, you know, sometimes I'm just wrong in my first draft of translation because, you know, like I said, I, I'm not sure I'm really not that good at Japanese, uh, hard as it may be to believe, you know. Mm. And so he'll give me a correct meaning as a suggestion, but sometimes he doesn't always express mm. the meaning very clearly. So I'll respond with something that I think might work. Like, is this what you think it says or wherever? And then we might revise this sentence back and forth several times. And then when he's satisfied that it works, we'll go with that. And so as long as there's nothing wrong with the meaning, he basically lets me write in whatever style that you know I prefer. So there's very little disagreement um, per se. Mm-hmm. But I think going back to how useful he's been, like as I said, I don't technically know anything about him. Um, but my my guess is basically that he's <laughs> roughly the same age or, or older than me. I feel like he's closer to Koba in age. Like he feels like a middle-aged Japanese guy, mm. partly because of the references and stuff that he'll talk about or he'll know a lot of the references that Koba is talking about. Like he could be just some, you know, obsessed fan like us who looks mm-hmm. up all this stuff and therefore knows it sure. by osmosis. But I'm gathering that he was, he is, is the, the target demographic for a lot of the whole, you know, Koba metal um, stuff. So he understands a lot of the Japanese pop culture, you know, in the 80s and 90s that are very mm-hmm. formative um, for the group, you know, and for Koba. He, he already knew a lot of the stuff about Dada dance and a lot of the older, I think, references that, would be harder for me to understand uh, in particular. I remember so, noticing that sure. that'll be something like uh, Dwayne Metal too. I know yes, Dwayne Metal yes. also is kind of like right in that area where, because he would often come up with these seemingly crazy things. It's like, oh, you know, this, whatever it was, you know, and then phrase is, you know, some comedian's catchphrase and, and you know, uh, like there's so a particular yeah, reference. Yeah, yeah. And but the thing is that I think now I've already forgotten where it was, but there was something in a recent translation that that pretty much confirmed that that was correct, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that 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 was in fact exactly where that came from. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a, a good example is the Hedelban um, Twenty Four interview that you guys talked about the last episode, the Kobe interview, where he's talking about pro wrestling. You know, mm-hmm. 
that's an example where <laughs> there were so many. I, I had to do so much research just to figure out what the hell was going on with that because I, you know, I didn't know anything about Japanese pro wrestling <laughs> beforehand. And he he talks about it as a basis for discussion and framing what he's doing with the metal so much that you have to understand it to figure out what he's going for. And apparently the readers, he expected the readers of Hedoban to understand those references because Japanese pro wrestling is a relatively mainstream thing, you know, in their culture. Like all he had to say was, you know, hey, you are so-and-so, sure. right? Like that phrase in of itself is immediately recognizable, I think, to oh, people. As the unmasking uh, in character? Right, right, the unmasking and what it meant and how the theater of Japanese wrestling works. And for us, that was totally, you know, un unfamiliar. So a lot of research goes into it because we're not, I'm not necessarily in the specific target demographic. That's the pro and cons of something when you're translating something that wasn't intended for you to read. But I, I would like to, you know, sort of like emphasize that you are also bringing something to this in that, um, you know, it's it's not just a matter of getting getting the you know, Japanese context down correctly. It's also a matter of recognizing when there are sort mm -hmm. of unintended nuances in the English translation. Like if you were going to translate it into English, it would have a slightly different meaning or carry different implications or whatever than it would have sort of literally, you know, so and, you know, particularly with so many of these things where people are really trying to do mm -hmm. kind of like textual analysis right. to figure out like what is happening. Um, you know, you, you don't want to bring in a word that carries a bunch of connotations that aren't, that aren't actually in the Japanese. Oh, absolutely. And I think that goes back to, under, again, understanding the target audience, you know, like just as they had a specific reader in mind when they do a magazine interview with Young Guitar, you know, I also have to have a specific audience in mind when I'm doing translation, because again, if you don't have someone in mind, you might just be too generic or you have to over explain or under explain. And I, I don't think that's good. You know, so for us, because that, that affects how much like editorializing a translator should be doing, right? Predominantly, the idea is that you shouldn't be adding stuff that wasn't in yeah. the original text. Um, but to me, that's not necessar necessarily a 100% rule that can't be broken. You know? So like, if I got a job at Metal Hammer to translate an interview, for <laughs> example, I know who my target audience is and what references they might be familiar with and what might need explaining. Um, but because I post my translations in mostly, you know, in communities like Reddit and Facebook groups, um, I can assume that most people reading them are already pretty deep down the foxhole, <laughs> like I am. So I don't need to explain things like the trilogy of lights, or or when the original text literally just right. says bones. You know, I know that I can safely translate it as baby bones because that's the term the fan base uses. Um, but you know, like I said, however, you know, while the original mm -hmm. Japanese audience might not need mm -hmm. any explanation, you know, when Koba's talking about some random TV show from the '90s the international audience might have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Um, and so when it comes to target audience, right. there are some nuances definitely in English that you can't just directly translate. Um, a example I have is from the Data Dance article. You know, they were talking about Tremaine Hawkins' woo voice uh, that was used as a sample. The writer mm -hmm. used a word that can mean, that can mean like sexy, but, you know, Cable Paramedic, he told me that it would be better translated literally as wild um, or hysteric, something that works people up. But I wanted to avoid mm -hmm. using those words specifically since he was talking mm -hmm. about a black woman's voice. And historically, there's been more of a negative stereotype of black people being you know, more animalistic. And those kind of words will evoke this kind of interpretation. Now, that wasn't a problem for a Japanese magazine for Japanese readers, mm -hmm. but I'm translating this for international readers and they could easily get the wrong idea so we avoided using the literal translation. 
And some might say this is the wrong thing to do, but you know, I've stayed pretty consistent in believing that when doing these kinds of magazine translations, you should translate intent um, more than words. Though of course, everything starts from the words. And so that's always why you know, there's never such a thing as a perfect uh, translation. Right. I think this is a good time to ask about trust. Okay. And if you consider or think about kind of the responsibility you've taken on being mm -hmm. a translator in this community, you know, because essentially all of us that don't speak fluent Japanese are enough to carry a conversation or read this content. We're really just taking you and the other translators for your word. I'm just kind of wondering what your thoughts on having to deal with that are. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Given that most people, you know, are unable to read Japanese, it's quite likely that the only exposure they have with these interviews will be from what we provide. You know? And even if it's unofficial and done for free, mm -hmm. there is a sense of pressure uh, to make mm -hmm. sure things are correct and not to spread information, you know, out of love and respect for the group. Um, and, you know, that's why I'm taking full advantage of the fact that someone like, you know, capable paramedic is willing to prove read and edit with me. I think I'm personally capable of releasing a 80% accurate translation, let's say by myself pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. But I prefer to have one that I'm like, you know, 99% happy with, even if it means releasing it maybe two or three weeks later to give us time to translate or for me to wait for him um, to revise it, you know, based on his schedule. Sure. Yeah. So I think, yeah, the way I address the issue of trust, because I, I do believe that's the case. People trust these translations and they're going to, I've seen people, you know, take screen caps and then, you know, share it all over Facebook. I'm like, what if I got it wrong? And I did get it wrong yeah. once and that was kind of awkward. Um, but that's why I have him go through every single one, even though I could probably just translate and post them myself in a karma grab mm -hmm. uh, to be faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think so one one thing that you do in those translations, which uh, I think, you know, helps with this is that you've chosen to present it in a way where you, you actually give the Japanese and then you and then you give your translation of it. Um, and then you have translators notes oh, yeah, yeah. sometimes, but the, mm -hmm. the Japanese text is there and, um, mm -hmm. which I actually find really helpful because even though I largely can't read it, it is, you know, I, I do like to be able to, if I, if I find something that kind of jumps out at me in the translation, I kind of like to be able to go back and find it in the Japanese and see, you know, see what Google did with it, see what yeah, DeepL does with it, uh, see if I can see, you know, like what writing system it's in, you know, is it a, is it in katakana or is it? Is it kanji or, you know, like what, like, I think that's, that's useful. Um, and it also, I think mm -hmm. it allows people to trust you more, I would think, because you've got mm -hmm. you know, right there, you're just saying like, like, this is where it came from. If you disagree, you know, mm -hmm. feel free to do it again. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point because you're right. It's not very commonly done, um, especially for fan, fan translations. Well, actually for any translation in general, mm -hmm. you don't have both together. I think there are several reasons, you know, for it. Um, the first is when I, you know, first started doing it, part of it is just that I was less confident um, in my translations. So I wanted to avoid the sense of me, you know, my translation being the quote unquote authority, you know, because I could e I could very easily be wrong. Um, and so I wanted the original source material to be there. So someone that understood the passage could make correction. And in fact, that's actually how, um, how we got started. You know, Killful Paramedic, he saw some things that were wrong with the Mikiko Middle interview, which he could see because, you know, you could compare it with the original text. And then, you know, he pointed it out to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was good. I, I wanted people to correct me, you know, when I was wrong. And they could only do that if they had the original text, you know, with them. 
So part of it is just, you know, well, I want people to correct me because I'm not confident in myself. And that's kind of how it started. Um, but part of it also is just that it helps to, cre- I think, I don't know if it works this way, but I, it helps to create the impression that I'm not infallible um, mm-hmm. or that translation is not infallible. There are different ways mm-hmm. to interpret a sentence, mm-hmm. you know. So when you have the original material there, especially when, especially when there's something that seems weird or you know, sometimes in an interview, there'll be some sentences that feel particularly strong or um, memorable. And whenever I see something like that, that's the time when I want to go back and see the original source material just to make sure that, A, it was translated correctly before I start spreading the word that, you know, mm. Yui's going to come back or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So, for example, you know, I think in some interviews when, let's say, you know, Sue talks about, you know, Shine, uh, a starlight, you know, right. and Yui or something like that, like, the dip when you know the way deep l writes it and the way i write it might be you know very different i'm like so when i see something that that, that seems mm-hmm. weird or out of character or even in character but it seems like a bombshell i want to go and see the original source just to make sure it's co- correct you know as opposed to someone's over interpreting something so by putting the original text next to it it gives people the opportunity to do that um you know more easily i don't i'm not sure how often people take advantage of this opportunity but mm-hmm. but uh it's there yeah I do. I mean, yeah, like, I, I definitely yeah, appreciate yeah. it, and I think anyone yeah, you know who's, who at least has ambitions to learn Japanese and knows a little yeah. um, probably does. Does. Yeah, as somebody trying to do that, I really appreciate it. Yeah, because I think one reason why I did that is because it's related to how I started getting translate translating for this community. Um, so. I don't. I think I don't think I actually talked about how I got started. Um, so how it got started is, you know, basically for the for the first I think seven or eight months of my time uh, as part of the one, um, you know, I just you know watch YouTube videos. I post on you know on the BM servers and whatever with people. Um, but then Lenzer, uh, he actually scanned and OCR the tenth anniversary you know Kadokawa interview, and like everyone else, you know, I just took it and threw it into DeepL to see if I could at least get some, something out of it. And then I realized, you know, holy, wow, you know, machines have gotten so much better translation. You know, you couldn't really do this back in the day with Google Translate, which is basically unusable um, for anything longer than a sentence. So I was pretty happy. You know, I was thinking, oh, I can read Japanese interviews now. Awesome. But then I started to look closer at the machine translation, you know, and I thought, oh, wait a minute, that's wrong. Hey, wait, 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 Deep L just completely skipped the sentence. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Deep L just added a pronoun there yeah, yeah, that yeah. did not exist. And that changes the meaning completely, you know, because yeah. Japanese language for people who don't know, it loves to omit pronouns, which you need to figure out through context. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's wrong. Um, and I'd hate for people to get wrong information, especially from such an important 10th anniversary book. You know, next thing you know, people are going to start talking about how Moa secretly hates Yui or something, you know, right. based on a mistranslation. Yeah. And so even though my Japanese is pretty bad, but I know I can at least do better than that. So I took it upon myself to translate the Mikikomela um, interview because that was the one that hadn't gotten OCR yet. And I wanted to do something new that not everyone had read before. Mm-hmm. And that's how the whole thing started. Um, so basically, based on the fact that I was able to compare the machine translation with the source, that's what told me that something was off. And that's what told me that, okay, there's, yeah, being able to look at the source material is very useful um, for certain people. And so I just kept the habit. Yeah, I definitely appreciate it. I guess maybe an interesting sidebar real quick. Who do you think has the best machine translation? Google, DeepL, Bing, 
Anything else out there? I mean, I'm only familiar with Google and um, DeepL. I know Microsoft has uh, one in translation, and I've heard it's pretty good. Um, but I haven't really looked into the, the differences mm-hmm. between each one. But if we're comparing DeepL and Google, there's there's absolutely no comparison uh, when it comes to at least entire paragraphs. Um, DeepL is so much better. Mm-hmm. But it skips sentences for some reason, and okay, it adds pronouns, enough. which Google will do as well, just because it's got, it's got to add something <laughs> in order for it to work grammatically um, in English. But it sometimes guesses incorrectly. Sure. And so I guess while we're on the topic of languages and translation and translation versus machine learning and things like that, one thing you one thing you don't do is translate lyrics. And I think it might be interesting for people to know why. Why don't you do lyrics? Well... The short answer is that my Japanese is bad. <laughs> no, so um, I haven't actually done lyric translations, as you say, um, precisely because it's it's very different um, most of the time from normal spoken Japanese, um, especially when it comes to their earlier songs mm-hmm. that are filled with a lot of double meanings and hidden imagery, um, as explored wonderfully um, mm-hmm. by Professor Hartley's analysis series. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, think about how, like, you know, translating lyrics is yeah. different from translating a conversation, even in English, you know. However, you take it up further a notch because mm-hmm. the potential for puns is even stronger in the Japanese language because there are fewer sounds in Japanese than sure. in English. So a word with m- multiple meanings, you know, mm-hmm. that shares the same pronunciation is even more common in Japanese. And, you know, Koba just goes wild with it. Yeah. Uh, right. So... Basically, the, the short story is partly the lyrics have already been translated for the most part. You know, Duan Metal, Do Metal has already done an excellent job on his blog. Yeah. And the ones that aren't officially on, on Metal Galaxy, there really isn't that much to translate, at least in term, as far as I can tell. The words for lyrics tend to be fairly straightforward. Um, so there just hasn't been a need yet. Mm. But, you know, for the fourth album, there may very well be a need for this. And assuming no one else steps up, I might have to, t- you know, to try it. We'll see. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You know, it, it it hadn't occurred to me that I don't really know the translations of the Metal Galaxy songs. I mean, like, you know, I, I'm always looking up the earlier ones for some reference or whatever, or whatever. And I look go to Do Metal's blog, and I and I knew at some conscious level that Metal Galaxy was not represented there. But yeah, that's interesting. So there there really isn't a, um, a sort of canonical source right for English translations of those. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Um, most of the Metal Galaxy song yeah, lyrics nine, are nine, nine, pretty nine, straightforward. Nine. Yeah, with the exception, well, yeah, you know, and I yeah. guess right. Omaj and I just translates itself basically. So, yeah. <laughs> but I, actually, I do think that uh, I mean, and we got we did get some sense of this. I think already in the Dada Dance um, article. But I mean, like that that there is some complexity in there. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like for example, you know, the, the lyrics in BMC may very well feel random. Um, but they might not actually be random. There might just be stuff that we don't know or understand, you know, the cultural references behind it or cultural hip hop, Japanese hip hop specifically mm-hmm. um, that no one else knows about, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't know it yet. Yeah. Um, another thing I noticed, I don't think you've done is uh, subtitling. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if that's just because it's a crap ton of work to sync subtitles to content. Or if there was another reason why you hadn't done any subtitling. I guess also that, that sort of relates to the question of doing translations of audio material as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So right. I guess, well, well te- I guess technically it's not correct to say I haven't done any subtitling because, you know, when desperate enough, I will do it. Um, as evidenced <laughs> by, I did help translate the, uh, <laughs> the whole Baby Metal Chronicles um, video. Mm-hmm. 
So, but yeah, generally mm-hmm. I don't do right. it because, so the good part about learning Japanese is that there are relatively few sounds. So pronunciation is very easy to learn, you know? Um, the bad sure. part is that a lot of words share the same sound, which isn't a problem when you're reading because you have kanji right. to explain the meaning very clearly. But when listening, there's nothing to work off of. You just have to know the word and it's harder to guess or look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And also uh, the, spoke, the sure. spoken word tends to be more conversational with more usage of slang compared to written interview. Um, so it's more likely that there will mm-hmm. be something that I've literally never heard of before or something that's not easy to look up in an online dictionary. Um, so the answer to this is, yeah, you know, I don't really do subtitles, partly because right. it is a lot of work, you know, thinking there's a lot of non-translation related busy work um, right. that I'm that's syncing subtitles oh, yeah. and, you know, doing a text and putting them in the right position and getting the timing right. Like, so part of it is that I'm lazy, uh, but part of it, no, is <laughs> it's just that just that it's a different skill. You know, I think interpretation, um, trans, like, by, like live interpretation, you know, mm-hmm. translating subtitles all are different skills within the overall umbrella um, of translation and mm. just because someone is good at one might not mean he's good at the other one yeah have, have you taken a stab at doing yeah i know you mentioned doing starcraft from korean to mandarin to english have you taken a stab at translating any other japanese content since you've gotten back into language learning and working with baby metal content um not really uh partly just because you know Trans, like I said, my Japanese isn't that good, so it takes a lot of effort, um, actually, to to translate. Sure. And so, as I said, I'm lazy, so I'm only going to translate something that I really love, <laughs> you know. And so, I love Baby Metal enough that I want to do this, but I'm not going to go and translate something that I don't, you know, for like something that I don't care about. So, so yeah, I haven't yeah, really taken sure. the opportunity to go and translate something. Like, I can read stuff in Japanese, you know, more easily now than I could six months ago, mm. um, because my Japanese mm-hmm. has slowly improved as I've gotten back into it and shaken off the rust. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't really, I have to care enough about it to, to translate it. And so far only people sure. know does that. Yeah. I, I guess I was wondering if you have a sense of how translating baby metal content relates to other material, um, because at least, you know, at least in the English presentation of their lore, their discography, things like that, there's a lot of reading in between the lines, even in English. And I guess what I was wondering is, is translating baby metal stuff maybe more difficult? Is it, you know, about the same? And that, that's not really just understanding the language. That's interpreting the message behind the language. Good question. Um, so as I said before, you know, I haven't really translated much Japanese stuff. Um, any translation work I did before um, in Japanese was for school assignments, you know, which is often literary, mm-hmm. um, you know, books and mm-hmm. stuff like that to practice, you know. And I think... Interviews in general are easier um, to translate, especially because it's mostly been, you know, teenagers speaking who tend not to use nearly as many, you know, metaphors or abstract concepts uh, compared to adults. You know, teens are more straightforward. Mm. And for me, um, COBA interviews are noticeably harder to translate uh, than the girls. Um, There's actually a Mm. a Mikio interview from 2016 that I tried to translate that I just can't do yet. You know, I might have to come back in a year mm-hmm. to do it because it's just too hard for me. There's too much. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, though, <laughs> it's easier to translate um, for baby metal because I understand a lot of the unspoken subtext um, or stories that they insinuate but don't fully explain, you know, because I'm already deep in the cult. And I know sure. a lot of things that they talk about that they don't bother explaining fully in detail because, like I said, they already know the readers are fans, you know, so they don't have to explain it. They can just hint at it and move on to the next thing. 
So I guess it's easier to translate their stuff because I'm a fan. <laughs> sure. You've, you've, you know the lore. <laughs> and that's actually, I think, you know, I, I've, I've often thought, I'm not sure I have good evidence for this, but I've often thought that, you know, if you really want to learn a language, the way you want to do it is to find something that you really want to, in that language mm-hmm. that you really want to consume, you know? Oh, exactly. Um, yeah. at, at, you know, at the risk of taking this way off topic, well, not, not really, but, you know, why not? Um, you can edit this out later. <laughs> so, you know, the, um, something that really struck me, because when I was... Uh, like, you know, 10 years ago or something like that, I was in the UK uh, for um, a, a conference or something like that. And there were kids, it was like an educational conference re- relating to democratic education. But the point is, there were kids from all over the world um, there. And there were kids, you know, from Germany, you know, from Japan, from Taiwan, from Euro- other parts of Europe and stuff like that. And something that struck me very much is that all the German, all a lot of the European kids, the German kids and whatever, their English was excellent, you know. And as we know, like, mm-hmm. you know, they learn English since, you know, for, for, for years and years in East Asia, you know, in Japan and Korea and Taiwan, we, you know, we learn English ever since elementary school and we still suck at it. <laughs> and, and so why is that? You know, I, I wondered why that is. And something that, you know, my hypothesis is the language of entertainment is extremely important. You have, it, it, mm. it makes it so much easier to learn a language when you're enjoying mm. yourself doing so mm. or to learn it by having fun. So for example, Japan's a big, a big enough market that there's a lot of stuff localized or created specifically f- for them. There's a, so much Japanese language entertainment that Japanese kids can immerse themselves in it and never, mm-hmm. you know, in their own Japanese language bubble. But for a sure. smaller market like, you know, Germany or like Sweden or whatever, like you're not going to get a Swedish translation or a Swedish release of Metal Gear Solid, you know, something like, or whatever, a video game when kids were growing up. Like so many people I talked to, they learned English by playing games or watching, mm. you know, English language movies that there's no Swedish dub. There's no Swedish subtitles. You have to figure <laughs> it out yourself. And because right. they enjoyed this stuff, they were willing to learn English in order to do it. You know, sure. so the language that you use to have fun, I think, really influences how well you learn the language. And unfortunately, for a lot of Japanese people, there's too much fun stuff in Japanese. That they don't bother <laughs> to learn mm-hmm. um, fun stuff in English. And so the English sucks. <laughs> And so thankfully for me, you know, the fun stuff in Japanese is baby metal. Um, and so that motivates me to learn and continue. And I think that's a good rule of thumb um, for anyone seeking to learn, learn a language, you know, learn it through something that you really enjoy. And of course, you know, academic learning and going by the book and textbooks are important, but you improve a lot faster when you're doing it, not just in school, you know, when you're doing it in your own free time because you enjoy the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, every time I watch something, in Japanese that I'm really interested in. I'm like, okay, I can get about 15% of this and I'm extra motivated for at least the next couple of days to get in the books, <laughs> open the apps and start studying again. So yeah, I, I can definitely speak to that being important. Yeah. Yeah. So no, you, you, you gotta have fun. It helps a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, I guess generally speaking, um, is there anything out there for fans you wish fans understood about baby metal that they might not because they don't understand the language. Hmm. I think, I don't think this is more about the language per se. Um, I think this is more of the whole, they're a Japanese group thing, you know, Yeah. that mm-hmm. they do things differently, partly just because, Oh, this is not just baby metal. Um, Japan mm-hmm. does things their own way, uh, partly because oh, they yeah. have a large enough, you know, 
you can you can call it ethnocentrism or whatever, or that they have a large enough domestic market that they can cater to the Japanese market and survive very well. You know, so Japanese bands, in comparison to bands from, let's say, smaller countries like Korea, Korea is an example of you know a country that has internationalized its entertainment industry to the entire world. Because mm-hmm. if they only relied upon Korean customers and Korean tastes and catering to the Korean audience, it be, their industry might be tiny because there's not enough people to support it. Um, and so they have to cater to the world. But Japan's got, you know, several sure. hundred million people who are also notably willing to spend. You know, they're, they're not cheap. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. it, that, that, that creates a different kind of uh, creative producer, you know, because you, you, know, you work with the market that you have. And so a lot of things that I think people complain um, about when it comes to Bay Middle or they wish that they do things this way or wish they didn't do things that way. I, I wish people would understand that it's not necessarily unique to them. It's more of a right. quirk mm-hmm. of how the Japanese entertainment industry works. Now, there are definitely problems with that, of course. Sure. But like, I feel like when people come, you know, when they compare, oh, well, Bandmade does this or so-and-so band does that. I'm like, okay, okay, that's great. And I wish people did that too. But you should know that Bandmade is the exception as opposed to the norm. Right. Um, when it comes to this specific right. kind of marketing or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So even if they're think, sort of, even if compared yeah. to sort of like Western groups, they tend to be sort of look more normal. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Bandmade is, goes very Western style in how they present themselves yes, with yes. the exception of the main outfits. <laughs> Right, right. Some bands definitely are already, are already, you know, they're they're changing. You know, even even within the Japanese media industry, you know, there there is change. It's just very slow. Yeah. And so I guess, yeah, there's some there's one thing that I'd wish that fans of BM would understand more clearly. Especially, I think, I don't want to call anyone out here, but I think younger fans in particular <laughs> who are more familiar with, let's say, K-pop or other groups that are more international oriented, like they're used to that. Um, but that mm-hmm. that takes effort. It's not easy to do. Like all props to K-pop for doing what they do. But a lot of people that are, who are used to that, they'll see that things that Bayminal Bay does or doesn't do, they'll see that as intentional. Yeah. You know, or whereas out for me, I'm like, no, I don't think that was intended to piss you off. Or I don't think that was intended to be like, you know, screw <laughs> right. corners. That's just them being them. It's not like, I'm sorry that you were hurt, but it's not personal. Yeah. It's not, that's not an excuse, you know, but yeah. yeah. I, I, the analogy that always comes to mind when I see stuff like that is Japan is so adverse to change. They still use fax machines in their day-to-day business operations. And, and, and not, not just for the medical stuff. Right. Oh, yeah. just, no, no. Change Japan, like, is glacial. Yeah. <laughs> they love the status quo and change is glacial. Yes. So my company, we make um, my real life job because I don't make money off translation, obviously. Um, my real life job is we make uh-huh. medical um, measuring equipment. Um, and for developed markets like, Germany and Japan in particular, like they want very specific things. They do not like revolutionary new products. They like innovation. They like something Mm -hmm. that slightly improves upon the current process. And then they get used to that thing. (laughs) And then they want something that improves on that a little bit more. Whereas some countries, you know, they want to go straight from landlines to to, to cell phones, right? But Japan's going to be like, you know, I want to go from landlines to this, to this, to this. Mm -hmm. They want to slightly improve it each time. You know, it's a very different way to, to look at things. I want to go from 28K to 56K to ISDN to DSL. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's even still true now that uh, like DVDs, actual oh, yeah. 480p DVDs are still, you know, made in common yeah. and stuff like that. And it's hard. It's relatively hard to find Blu-ray versions of things. 
That's crazy. And a lot of those DVDs are still region locked to Asia. Like you have to have an Asian player. Uh-huh. Um, I actually found this, and this isn't a baby metal example, but it was another group. I was I, I bought a DVD from them and went to rip it, and I had to switch the region on my computer's uh, Blu-ray reader to rip the DVD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's the pros and cons, you know, of having a very established market. You know, the pro is that you can survive doing a lot yeah. of things, but the con is that you you're not willing or unable to take bigger risks or more dramatic um, changes to a certain extent right. because you have more to lose. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I suppose actually you could you could view what they're doing as um, they they are primarily just a domestic group that is trying out being international rather than being an international group. Yes, I think that's a very good way to describe yeah, accident, it. Accidentally made it big in the West. Yeah. <laughs> or to put it as Moa put it, you know, you know, why do people love Bay Metal? I, I want to know myself. They don't actually know why they've succeeded to the certain extent <laughs> that they had internationally. They're happy for it, but they don't actually know how to market internationally because that was never really their yeah. goal. You know, it wasn't a target. It's just something that kind of happened because of how awesome they are. And they're still trying to figure out how it works. You know, yeah. and they change. And I think they're trying. They're definitely trying. Yeah. It's just slow. You know, the, the the live stream this time is a market improvement over, yeah. let's say, Rock Mekan, You know, for example. Absolutely. But no, just yeah. being able to view the like, the entire thing in context of it being Japan, I think that helps to temper um expectations, and just to yeah to, to not take things so you know personally as an insult to 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 you as a fan base. Well, and just remember, <laughs> Japan hates change. Mm-hmm. And if you want change, it might, it's probably going to happen. It's just going to take way longer than a Western market. Oh yeah. You know, and I, I think you see that over the, over the last 10 years of existence, just kind of the glacial pace in which they have evolved their brand internationally. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and yeah. that they didn't expect to. No, for, no, no, right? not at all. Um, so we do have a question okay. from chat. Uh, Xbook asked, do you go the other way and help translate English articles? Or content into Japanese for the Japanese fans. So, uh, short answer is no. Um, longer and long answer is so. In translation, generally, um, even though you have a language pair, most translators will only translate in one direction, and it's almost always you always translate into your native language. Um, because even if you can understand the other, la- other language, you might mm-hmm. not be able to write effectively or accurately um, in that language. So for me, I almost always translate from Chinese into English or from Japanese into English. Um, I mean, I, at this point, I can translate from English to Chinese fairly well. Um, but that's because my Chinese has gotten almost to native le- mm-hmm. level. But basically, you always translate into your native language. Mm-hmm. And that's how it works. Because there's the significant difference between reading something and being able to write it. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder I wonder if there is so I mean like, you know, in this particular fan base, I'm not sure that there would be that much of this going from English to Japanese. I mean, mm-hmm. like we've heard a little bit about occasionally someone who would look at Reddit or look at Discord or or you know, and sort of try to gauge what the western response is uh, by translating English stuff. Baby Metal Lies is a notable example, right? They translate our exactly. chip yeah. posts into Japanese. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But so uh, but I could see, you know, like you, you might be well positioned for somebody, you know, somebody who wanted to do th- this seriously. If there was really something that was in English, say the graphic novel mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that people in Japanese might want in Japanese, uh, you could serve in the capable paramedic role, you know, right. Um, in principle, if someone wanted to go that direction, you could, you could help 
you could help in the translation, but from from the other side. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, I, I could help explain what the English meant, mm-hmm. but I'd say that capable paramedics English is better than my Japanese. In other words, I can't. Mm-hmm. He can suggest like English translations for how this should mean, and then I can mm-hmm. understand it well enough to reword it to be smooth. Mm-hmm. But I cannot suggest a Japanese wording for something um, to someone who's trying to translate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can tell them exactly what it means in English, but I can't give them suggestions for how it seems or if they give me a translation, if it seems weird or weird or not. Mm-hmm. My Japanese just isn't at that level yet. Basically, I'm kind of here because no one else was doing it and not because I'm good at it. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Do you guys communicate with each other in Japanese or English? Mix of both? Oh, almost 100% in English. Okay. Uh, do you have any advice for people who might want to get into translation or start a language learning journey of their own? I mean, I'd say, you know, you just, you just got to go for it and don't worry about making mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. as I said earlier, you know, like Japanese people are famous for or, in, or infamous for learning English, <laughs> English all their lives and still being terrible at it yeah. because they never use yeah. it in real life because yeah. they're afraid of making mistakes. And I was like, that's not how you yep. learn a language, man. You just got to go with it and make mistakes and figure it out, you know? And so, yeah. I, you know, it's not some kind of, People would say, oh, you know, I can't learn another language or it's so hard or you're so good at it. I'm like, no, that's just, that's just practice. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. So you just got to try it and don't worry about, you know, making mistakes because people are going to make mistakes. I make mistakes too. Mm-hmm. And you, sure. you just don't see it because we already handle it and fix it and revise it before I post it publicly. Sure. And actually, I did want to mention that we are, I think we're seeing a little bit of an expansion of the the sort of set of people who are doing translations, too. So oh, yes. um, we have uh, the person who goes by the name Sappy Syrup um, mm-hmm. has done a couple recently. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it looks like looks like there will be more as well. And, you know, so so that's also great. So the, all the burden is entire is not entirely on you. <laughs> For one thing. I mean, ideally, <laughs> you know, I just I just sit yeah. back and wait for people to do it, and I, I just enjoy reading it. But uh, unfortunately, that's not how how it is. So, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But we do. We definitely. We we hugely appreciate what you're doing. We uh, you know appreciate the other ones yeah, that are coming absolutely. out as well. And yeah. It's helped us understand the context a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, a so lot. Yeah. Sure. I'm sure it's helped you a lot. You know, to to understand it. But um, uh, it's, you have allowed us to understand it with you so that's that's very it good. is it is definitely bringing a lot back or from from my my, my days uh studying you know translation at, as a theory um and language and stuff like that um honestly there's there's a lot of stuff that i've learned i think in in translating where it helps to bring things uh concepts um into life by actually doing you know mm-hmm. so for example mm-hmm. i think uh we we actually kind of went to this but i've i didn't really fully address it earlier on um, is that difference in styles um, between translators or disagreements mm-hmm. between, let's say, me and um, capable paramedic or, or with other translators? You know, so part, there mm-hmm. there always is some of that, and you know, like I said, there's no perfect translation because you're always just trying to find a balance. You know, so so my style generally is I try to understand the original meaning and intent of the text, and then I write the sentence as if it weren't a translation. You know, purely as an editor, and sometimes I might mm-hmm. take it too far and stray from the original intent of the sentence, but I think generally it works. So a good example of literal, literal translation versus intent is, let's say there's a movie I saw recently where a child asks an adult who is acting condescendingly to them, like, do you think I'm five or something? You know, like in Chinese, there's a phrase with almost identical intent and meaning, but the, the set phrase age used in it is three, mm-hmm. not five. So a literal translation would stay with five, but three, like, do you think my, my three-year-old 
would be a lot more natural to the, to the Chinese speaking mm -hmm. audience. And the intent expressed by the sentence is the same as the original. So do you use three or five in here? So this is a more extreme example of a time where not sticking too close to the original word might actually help a reader understand the meaning. Um, whereas mm. for Kegel Kermetic, he says that, well, he understands why I do things this way. You know, I'm not entirely as a translator, but partly as an editor. Whereas for him, his style is he prefers to express his translations because he also does some by himself as if mm -hmm. a non-native English speaker is struggling to express their thoughts and sentiments in English. So as their unfamiliar mm -hmm. language. So his intention is to make mm -hmm. sure the readers can feel a bit of discomfort or oddity and notice that there's another way of thinking or expressing it than theirs. So it's for him, he tries to make it more obvious, well, or at least he doesn't try to hide the fact that it's Japanese girls saying this sentence. And if it doesn't feel smooth, that's good because they're not, these are not American girls speaking English, despite the, you know, he, he doesn't try to hide the fact. Whereas for me, I try to make it read as if it's, you know, an American star saying mm -hmm. something. So there's a difference in style um, because of that. He tends to be more, slightly more literal um, in the way he translates. You can find some of his stuff um, posted on Reddit as well. And whereas mine tends to be much mm -hmm. more smoothed out um, for better and for worse. Right. Localized, yeah. you might say. Uh, that is interesting. I think so, yeah. yeah. It hadn't occurred to me, like you know, the the way you the way you sort of stated capable paramedics idea is that um, it is it's still it's still relieving some of the Japanese ness in there. Yes, even if it didn't have to be clumsy, mm -hmm. it's still it's still retaining the the um, you know the effect that it's not English, not it's not born English. Right, or the fact that you know it might be unsmooth to English ears is specifically because Japanese people express this yeah. thing in a different way, you know. Like I, yeah. we, I don't think about the yeah. things the same way that you do. And so therefore you're going to think it's odd when you read it. And that's perfectly fine. Like that's the way, you know, he sees it. And in some cases I agree with that. In some places I feel, nah, I think I do. Yeah. Hmm. It's, it still comes down to the question of like, are you trying to recreate the experience that the Japanese have reading that interview? Yeah. Or are you trying to, you know, like, what is it that you're trying yes, to recreate? Yes, yes. If you're trying to recreate the meaning, then yeah. So. Well, that, that goes into a. Um, and, you know, feel free to cut me off if you guys are short on time wherever, but, you know, or this just might be uh, the, the translation segment. Um, no, go for it. So that goes, what Paul was saying, um, goes into the whole, there's a lot of um, technical concepts in translation. So the one that you're talking about is the whole invisible translator um, concept, you know. So the ironic part about mm -hmm. translation is that, yeah, the more invisible the translator attempts to become, the more the original author's voice is lost. You know, like a literal word-for-word -word translation is like really clunky, awkward, mm. and probably grammatically incorrect. And that's not the feeling that the original audience got at all when reading the text. Right. So obviously this is extreme, but it goes to show that a translator must, to a certain extent, reword things um, so it makes sense. You know? So to be good, you actually mm. have to really understand the original text and then create a new voice for the author. Um, something that's your own style because uh, what, I try, what I try to do is recreate the feeling that the original the Japanese readers of the magazine got when they read the magazine um, as much as possible you know and sometimes there are very in, like uh, creative tools or ways to do that you know so an interesting example that I've seen there's a manga called um, Azumanga Daio and in the manga there's a character from Osaka and the stereotype is that people from that area, the Kansai area, mm. all speak in the Kansai Ben, also the case in Kyoto. Um, mm. Essentially, it's it's different from standard like Tokyo style Japanese that most people learn. And so she speaks, she supposedly speaks in a slightly different dialect 
And in the English anime adaptation, what they do is they give her somewhat of a Boston accent, which doesn't huh. fit perfectly in my opinion, but the spirit of it makes sense. You know, sure. I think it was chosen because it's not as subtle or hard to notice as an American Midwestern or West Coast accent, but it's not nearly as heavy as a Southern drawl, you know? So I think this right. is a good example of creativity and translation that helps to preserve the original intent um, of the author. Or, you know, on a related note, it's also interesting that a lot of Japanese songs, Baby Moto included, will use English words in them, you know, sometimes randomly, sometimes making sense in the context of the song. Now, I think what's really fascinating is that at a certain level, the English that's used in these songs is its own language. Rather, it seems like more of an expansion of the Japanese vocabulary, despite being ostensibly in English. This is because the word can mean something to Japanese people and yet something else to native English speakers. So when it comes to translating Japanese lyrics to other languages, you know, what do you do? Let's say you want to translate a song from Japanese into English, and there are English lyrics or words in the song. If you just directly bring the English over, then something inevitably missing because the context and feeling is different. So to repeat the point, the very feeling of seeing an English word in the middle of a Japanese song must be preserved. So for example, let's say you might translate that English word into a French word to retain the original sense <laughs> and intention of the song, you know, the exoticness of English uh -huh. as it's perceived by Japanese people, you know. So th yeah, there's a lot of different, different, you know, things that you can do depending on what your goal is, whether it is to create the feeling or to translate literally, if it's literally, then yeah, just keep the English as it is, you know, all oh, great, pre-translated, awesome. This reminds me somewhat of, the, I mean, you know, now, now I'm on a huge tangent, <laughs> but um, there's something that I thought was actually super clever um, in a, an old British sitcom called LOLO, which is set in in France, but it's English, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's speaking English, but but in the, in the what you're supposed to believe is that they're speaking French. Mm. And so they introduce a character, you know, at some point along the way that um that speaks bad french but the way that they do this is basically that they they have him mispronounce all the vowels mm -hmm. in english huh. <laughs> he's he's misspeaking but what he's misspeaking is french yeah. you know it's it it's a it's a great way to to um sort of communicate that and still let it still live in english um uh it's i mean like you know the the whole show is incredibly dumb <laughs> it's very funny but it's incredibly dumb but but that was a, i thought a very clever thing they yeah did. yeah no there's a lot of creativity and stuff that definitely goes into translation and like i said before there's no such thing as perfect translation and also what's suitable changes you know with time for you know let's say what might have worked mm -hmm. now what, what, what works now might not have worked you know 20 years ago when people were less familiar with japan in general you know, so for, I guess for, as another right. example that way I find often is that baby metal, they use the word san a lot when talking to people. And so, mm -hmm. but do you translate that or not? I used to, I used to do it. And right. then I'm trying to, you know, trying to, because if you leave it untranslated, you know, that seems kind of weird. But if everyone reading it already knows what san means, maybe it's better to just keep it untranslated as opposed to translate it to Mr., you know? And so sometimes there are these things that I'm still trying to figure out myself, you know, like as an honorific, let's say San basically adds respect, but you can also use it for non-human things. And sometimes it can mm -hmm. imply a feel of keeping a respectful distance to something. So something on a random note is mm. I always found that the younger girls in Sakura Gakuin referring to Suzuka as Su-chan mm. during the SG days to be a very interesting illustration. Mm, yeah. 
it's not really appropriate to call her Su San, even though she's older, because that creates a sense of distance that they might not want. Mm. But going with Su directly without anything else might seem too casual and too intimate. And so they use Su Chan, even though normally it's a diminutive usage. You know? And so how do you translate these things? And sometimes huh. you, you, you can't. Yeah. And sometimes you just assume that, you know what? Japanese pop culture is pervasive enough that everyone knows what Chan and San means. So I'm just going to leave it untranslated. And that works. That works now, but it might not have worked sure. 20 years ago. Well, so for example... Um, let's say when they talked about, you know, Rob Halford, you know, they always get rope sign. And so, well, if they wanted to be more formal, you know, they might say Halford sign, Mr. Halford, right? Right. But they say Rob sign. This is first name plus a sign, (laughs) which is kind of a weird mix, right? Like, are you trying to be respectful to the guy, you know, as an elder or are you on a first name basis with with the guy? You know what I'm saying? So at first I tried, you know, I translated as Mr. Rob. Um, <laughs> because, you know, that helps to, you know, their, their, their kids looking up to their big daddy yeah. figure, you know, and it's kind of awkward and clunky, partly because it is cl- clunky. No one says, you know, first name son. That's just weird, right? <laughs> but eventually I just stuck with, you know what? Screw it. Mr. Rob is too weird. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to go with Rob's son. Yeah. I definitely get the feeling that that's known, you know, that people understand that now, but um, it's, yeah. that might just be my changing worldview. <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. So like I said, you know, what works now might not have worked 20 years ago and might not work 20 years from now, you know. So mm-hmm. translation is not a dead, you know, thing. It's yeah. always constantly evolving um, and, cha- and, and changing. That's something that they really taught us, you know, in school about it. And I never really understood it until I actually started doing it, you know, for myself. There's a difference between, you know, right. theory and figuring it out through practice. So what you're saying is that the 30th anniversary translations are going to possibly be different. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. If only because I should be much better at Japanese uh, 20 years from now. (laughs) Hopefully. So I guess I I have a final question. I'm going to close on a fun Mm -hmm. one. Okay. You've probably read more interviews and consumed more content of that nature about baby metal than your average fan probably even us so i think you have a pretty good sense of what might be fun here if you had the opportunity to interview them anybody and i'm talking you could be moa sue koba anybody who would you interview and what would you Mm -hmm. ask if you had two questions Mm -hmm. okay so obviously people want to know like you know well when's the fourth album coming out or like you know when's you coming back or whatever (laughs) you know so that's kind of pointless (laughs) I think for me, what I really like, they've already answered a lot of the questions I like through these in-depth magazine interviews, like, you know, how did they grow during the dark side or wherever? Yeah. I think for me, I just want to know, you know, like, I just want to know a moment or a show that they really enjoyed, you know, and, and, and why, and just, you know, just, and just talk about it. I don't want to just necessarily hear, you know, oh, Tokyo Dome was great, but if there's something, a, sp- a special moment, mm-hmm. you know, from the show that stuck with their minds, even now, that makes them smile when they think about it, you know, like that's the kind of thing I'd love to know. I think, I guess that's just more of a wanting to know them mm-hmm. as a person. Like, that, that, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing you'd ask your yeah. friend who's in a band who just pulled off something sure. really cool. And, you know, you want to see, you know, what's stuck with you or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Which is the kind of question that would never be asked, I think in an interview, um, but it's the kind of thing that I'd want to know about them, you know? <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. Would you ask the question in English or Japanese? 
I, I think by default, um, I'd have to ask in English because I couldn't word it very well um, in <laughs> Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> but 20 years from now, you know, sure. sure, I'll ask in Japanese. Yeah, for the 30th anniversary when you're the interviewer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, okay. So, um, yeah, this has been, this has been mm-hmm. great. We've very much appreciated what you've made available to us, um, but it's been mm-hmm. great talking to you today as well, yeah. um, just sort of about, about all this stuff. And uh, we have, <laughs> you know, uh, we still have several <laughs> of your translations to get through. Um uh, and we do enjoy talking about mm-hmm. it on the podcast because it does it gives us little things that we can actually sort of grab mm-hmm. onto and talk talk around and and uh, you know it's, I found it very useful to not only just have access to these but you know be able to sort of talk mm-hmm. talk o- about them. Uh, so thank you for you know giving yeah. us content. Absolutely, <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, I think at, at a certain level we are reaching a point of saturation uh, just because like we've done so much material over the past that some of the stuff is starting to overlap um, with each other. Um, yeah. which is, you know, which is fine. Cause now I feel less pressure to have to translate something because like people need to know, like, mm-hmm. like most sure. people, I think, I think we've already translated most of the stuff that is really important at this point. And I'm partly just waiting for the Budokan interviews to come right. out someday mm-hmm. and that'll be new stuff, you know, but otherwise I'm kind of like, okay, I think we've done most of what needs to be done. But as I say that I'm actually still working on a young guitar, uh, Budokan, um, show report. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. I think for me to think about because show reports, I never did them before. Mm-hmm. And cause I thought they were kind of pointless, but then I realized that, you know, it's, it's worth trying out because I I came to the conclusion that the Japanese fan base enjoys middle in a very different way than we do. Most of us mm-hmm. in the foxhole have actually watched more shows than they have on Blu-ray mm-hmm. because we, we pirate stuff like crazy and they just <laughs> watch Blu-rays. You know what I'm saying? So, like for us, we're like, why would you read a show report? That's such a waste of time. Whereas for them, for many people, reading about the Budokan is the only way that they know what happened mm-hmm. before they buy the Blu-ray. They didn't watch, most of them, you know, don't watch Aerometa's fan cam. They don't know that there was Moa and four baby foxes, you know? Mm-hmm. They don't know about that sure. or what the stage looked like. So they need someone to describe it professionally in a show report. And I thought, okay, well, it might be kind of pointless, but I may as well try it and see, you know, mm-hmm. give this to the community. Just, I just thought it was interesting that, yeah, the Japanese fan base um, consumes and enjoys the band in, in such a different way. Like maybe maybe they've been to more live shows, but we've actually seen more stuff than they have, you know? So for us, it's a much right. more visual um, experience. And for them, they read about baby metal a lot more than we do, let's say, you know, through interviews. Mm-hmm. So our perception of the band is different. You know, they have a much more, mm-hmm. I think, I hate to use the word, um, intellectual interpretation and understanding of the group. Whereas for us, it's much more visual and sure. visceral, I think, I think in general. Fair. And I, I'm trying to bridge the gap between that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that would be super interesting. I think to go back to StarCraft for a moment, <laughs> Full circle. the skill gap between Koreans and the rest of the world was seemingly unsurmountable, mm. you know, and a big part of that was just the environment. There's just so much in-depth knowledge about the game that was Korean knowledge, language only, you know, like analysis and commentary. And even though Baby Metal famously says, you know, don't think, feel, I think ironically, in a sense, the international fan base is a lot like this, you know? The average fan that follows via YouTube videos only knows them from the performances and a few really simple scripted English interviews. And as we all know, the in-depth stuff that explores what they think is largely untranslated until now. Mm-hmm. So. 
I don't think there's a right way to enjoy the band, but I do want to reduce this gap in knowledge so international fans can appreciate bay metal from a perspective that's closer to the Japanese if they want to, sure. you know, feel, of course, but also, also think. think, you know, despite <laughs> despite what Sue says, you know, Sue is wrong. Go ahead and think. <laughs> feel <Yeah>. critically. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. So that's what I'm trying to do here. You know, I want people to be able to, under, to, to think and feel if they, if they want to. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. Uh, so where can people find you and your translations? So generally, um, I, I will post uh, my translations in the various Baby Metal um, Discord servers that I'm involved in. Um, but I also post them on my Twitter account and on several Facebook groups. Um, but they are all they all point towards the same source, which is I have a blog that, well, that's become a uh, Baby Metal blog nowadays, you know, where you can find all the translations there. Uh, I think sometime someone is going to be really surprised when they start going through my blog archives and, you know, they're reading about, you know, Moa and Yui and cute girls. And all of a sudden there's like an in-depth article about, you know, the American <laughs> Navy or something like that. Like, what the hell? <laughs> but it is a personal blog. It is not a pivotal blog, despite yeah, what it's sure. become. It is my personal blog and uh, my stuff can be found there. Um, and then I have, uh, I'd also do fan art. Um, I also post my fan art on Twitter and on my deviant art. Um, people can find it if they're interested in being by post links. Okay. And we'll definitely include links to it. And I will say you can throw a little bit of money his way. You can buy him a pizza via his blog. I definitely encourage you if you are able to do that, show your thanks for all the hard work he's doing. Yep. yep. Indeed. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I bought, yeah, I bought uh, the Young Guitar, you know, magazine interview. I think at least the pricing for magazines in Taiwan is not too outrageous because, you know, they import them directly. So you don't have to pay for all the shipping. It just takes a lot longer because, for example, Metal Hammer, the English one, it looks great. It's not available here yet. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to wait. Great. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And for all the hard work you and all the other, all the translator community does. Yeah, no, thanks for, thanks, thanks for having me. You know, I think it's kind of surreal, um, you know, to be here today. I, mean, I, I can think back to, you know, a year ago when I first joined the fan base and finding about, out about Bay Metal and the podcast. I remember listening to episodes, you know, Kevin talking about Legend Metal Galaxy or, Kids, kids, you know, kids name moments and, mm-hmm. or interviews with Darren about photography mm-hmm. and all those things helped to it enhance my own enjoyment um, of the group so much, you know, of the community. Because I don't think, yes, Bay Metal is great and the material is great, but there's only so much, it'll only go so far because they're not particularly active, right? The thing that keeps us involved and in love, you know, with the band, despite them not doing anything, (laughs) to exaggerate, (laughs) is the community, you know? So absolutely, it's just, you know, know, it's an honor um, to be here part of, you know, as part of um, the community and I hope to continue doing so um, in the future. Oh, great. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So I guess then that is it for this episode. Um, you can join us on the baby metal podcast discord to continue the conversation. Rating the podcast on whatever platform you listen on will help people find it. So please do that. We'll be back here in about two weeks. Uh, and in fact, actually, uh, just after the live stream and we hope you'll join us then. So until then, see you.